Hi, I'm Cardiff Garcia, and this is The New Bazaar. Coming up on today's show... Again, trying to hold two views in my brain at the same time. One is just about how ubiquitous and powerful technology is, and also how impotent it can be in some of these really big challenges. Shira Oviday on technology, commerce, and the way we live. Today's show is all about technology, how it's changing, how it's evolving, where it's headed, its relationship with the economy. And to talk about all that, I called up my old friend Shira Oviday. Shira and I were in grad school together and I've known her for more than 15 years. She's now the author of the On Tech newsletter at the New York Times. And I swear I'm not just saying this because she's a friend. Reading Shira is a phenomenal way for people like me, people who don't have a deep background in all the technical aspects of science and technology, to understand how technology affects us in ways that are both obvious and subtle, and also to understand how the evolution of the tech sector ends up having these big and unexpected societal consequences, very often improving our lives in some wonderful, marvelous ways and sometimes some ways that are not so great. This was a super fun chat. Here it is. Shira Oviday, my old pal, welcome to the new bazaar. Cardiff, it's so good to hear your voice. Here's where I want to start. I want to talk about the technology that you want to see in the year 2022, which is also the technology that I want to see and that I think everybody wants because it's technology that brings people together. And you wrote about this in one of your newsletter columns recently, and you're talking about the apps and the websites that promise connection. And then here's what you write. Quote, sometimes they deliver, and other times human ties over cyberspace are a poor substitute for the real thing. But I still believe in that hokey promise of bringing the world together online to try to better understand one another and our world, unquote. Shira, that is not hokey. That is romantic. It's idealistic, I dare say. Uh, what do you mean by it? Oh, thank goodness. I, I thought that was like hopelessly corny. But I mean, look, it's, <laughs> I loved it. The, the thing I try to do is hold two disparate ideas in my head at once. And those are that, yes, we know from our personal experience and from living in the world that these technologies that have become ever-present in the last 10 or 15 years are um, in many ways horrible, right? That they brought us things like Russian and Chinese propaganda, ways for you know villainous people to sort of harass and dox people over the internet, um, kind of the, the rapid spread of lies faster than the truth. But I think we also know from our personal experience that our lives are better and richer because of these communities and communications technologies that we're able to form online. And that might be, you know, a local parenting group or figuring out if you're a gay teen in the middle of Zimbabwe and you don't think there's anybody like you, you have a community of people who are like you on Um, WhatsApp or Facebook or some other website, right? And so I think what I was really just hungry for, particularly at the end of yet another pandemic year in 2021, was more of these 
technologies and ideas to help us find our communities, maybe do a little bit less work if we feel like we're interested in you know, helping our neighbors or figuring out local cycling groups to join, right? And and we know that they're out there, but they're sometimes hard to find. And even when we find them, it's, you know, community building and relationship building is hard. So I, I was sort of eager for something like that. And the thing I mentioned was, this was a very small example of a website that started during the pandemic that's called Window Swap, which is very simple that it's a website that drops you in to a view from someone's window. And you can just kind of hop from, you know, some apartment block in Seoul where you're looking out on some superhighway to somebody's suburban backyard in Michigan. And at least for me, that really felt like you were sort of seeing the world through someone else's eyes just for a minute or two or maybe even a few seconds. And at least for me, that is just a small example of what is possible with these sort of technologies that can put us in the place of someone else. Literally, we're seeing the world through someone else's eyes. Yeah. And I I wanted to ask you about this because something I wonder about a lot is whether or not we expected too much of social media in particular, but technology more generally in terms of bringing people together. We've certainly learned that it can split people apart. And you just gave a lot of examples where it can actually foster some sense of community. But I wonder if either we expected too much of it or if maybe we forgot that technology or a lot of people forgot that technology doesn't take away like the messiness of human interaction, of developing human relationships. It can maybe guide it. It can provide it in a different domain of life. But you still have to do the work. And so in some ways, it's like it can maybe magnify or intensify the way that we get on with people or don't get on with people, but it doesn't replace the importance of, you know, taking the right attitude, the right approach, spending time with someone. And so in terms of just expectations, especially, I don't know, 15 years ago when social media was just getting going, how do you think technology has sort of either exceeded or fallen short of those expectations, or maybe it just ended up doing something totally different from what we expected? It's a, it's such a great question. And I feel like this is something that I, I struggle with as a, as somebody who has to report on technology. And I think it felt particularly acute for me during the pandemic, because when I think about all of the great challenges of our current time, whether it's this this pandemic, this health crisis, this global public health crisis, or education, or housing and homelessness, or education, or unaffordable childcare, or violent crime, or f- climate change, you know, fill in the blank. It feels like technology is, you know, arguably at best a, a marginal fix for those problems, right? Like maybe it can help on the margins, but these are sort of human and policy challenges. And those are the kinds of things that I am not sure technology has a really big role in solving. And it does feel like, I can only speak for myself, that I maybe think a little bit differently about this than I might have 10 or 15 years ago. You know, when we talked about movements like the Arab Spring. Not everybody believed this, obviously, but I think there was a view in the West and among technologists that 
that was sort of a social movement that sites like Facebook enabled, that they wouldn't have been possible otherwise. And you know that may be true, but look, people still had to do the work. And maybe it was easier to organize on Facebook or, or through other, Twitter and other apps, but it was still the people who did it. And, and so I, that's the kinds of things that I'm struck by. Um, again, trying to hold two views in my brain at the same time. One is just about how ubiquitous and powerful technology is, both as a force in the world and in our individual lives day to day, and also how impotent it can be in some of these really big challenges. Yeah. One reason I I haven't become a total cynic on technology, though, uh, aside from my, I don't know, inherently sunny, optimistic nature, (laughs) I don't know, um, is because of some of the ways that technology did respond in the crisis. And to take one example that you noted in your column, the app Clubhouse, which is one of these kind of live chat apps that had kind of a nice moment um, about a year ago, I believe, where a lot of people went on there and they started using it to talk to each other in real time. And it still exists, by the way, and I don't know how well it's doing, but I remember thinking, wow, this is kind of a cool thing that didn't exist just a few years ago. And in this moment where I think people would love to be able to chat with others live and not just type at each other or text each other, this was something that came up and everybody saw it and, you know, they sort of came together and and they used it. Another one is just like the the simple teleconferencing technology that's gotten so much better in the last few years. I had a book club with a few friends that in the height of the pandemic, when it was really dangerous in those early months to go anywhere, we used it to like have a little book club that I think would be way more fun to do in person, but that wasn't an option. And so this was actually kind of a useful thing that we use to to keep up our relationship. So I, I have seen some examples where it can work, um, but we also have so many examples where it doesn't work or where it does something that we didn't expect it to do. So yeah, I'm I'm sort of still upbeat about its potential. I just think that in the last 15 years or so, we maybe came to think that it was going to be this groundbreaking revolutionary thing. And instead, what we've realized is that we still kind of have to look inward for what we want to get out of it um, before we actually are able to use it the right way and to use it with a lot of deliberateness, right? And not necessarily in the way that just captures our passive attention for hours and hours and hours on end, because that also is a danger. Yeah, no, well said. I I mean, I think uh, something that I'm fond of saying is that technology is not magic, that it is a tool, which is the thing that people in technology say, and it is true, right? It, it is a tool. It can be um, used badly. It can be used to good ends to bring people together, even if it's you know for an hour in a clubhouse chat about something dumb, or it, it's a tool that can be misused and abused. And I agree with you that one um, important element is just sort of A, being aware of the limitations and also just being deliberate about how it's used. And in some cases, maybe, you know, maybe there isn't a role for technology in everything. Uh, Meredith Broussard, who's a computer scientist who, uh, an academic at New York University, you know, something that she has talked to me about and has written about is just don't use technology in cases where you need to make human decisions. And, you know, she wrote a piece for the New York Times uh, last year or in, in 2020 about this scandal in Britain over grades, basically 
software AI that was used to issue grades when schools shut down temporarily. And as you might imagine, computers are not super great at issuing grades. And, you know, I think there was a lot of discussion about, well, you know, the AI will get better and maybe the data, just feed more data into this machine. And eventually it will sort of make better decisions if you just feed it better, smarter data. And, you know, Meredith's point was to sort of step back and say, okay, but maybe we shouldn't use technology for this period. And those feel like the kinds of questions we should be asking is not, you know, trying to design a better uh, technology mousetrap in all cases, but just to ask, do we really need a mousetrap at all? Let's talk about the metaverse, shall we? (laughs) Oh boy, deep sigh. (laughs) Big sigh. And a big tweet from you not long ago. Uh, You tweeted, what if we just called the metaverse dot, 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 the internet, <laughs> which I thought was fantastic. And it kind of gets at the fact that it's hard to define what the metaverse actually is just yet, right? It's not really something that's developed yet, but people are talking about it as if it's inevitable, as if it's coming. And I have found it kind of hard to explain, not so much to other people as to myself. So should, should we just talk about how to even begin defining this thing called the metaverse? Well, I also find it hard to define it for myself. And I think there's a good reason for that because it's a fake term for a fake thing. Ah. Um, so, and, and I totally understand the sort of the desire to put a name on it. And I, I have wondered, um, I think I've seen some interviews with Neil Stevenson, who's the science fiction writer who sort of coined that term in the 90s. And I do wonder what he thinks about basically all these technology companies using that term metaverse in ways that mean kind of everything and nothing at the same time. But, you know, I think to me, at least my understanding of it in the simplest form is it is the next potential phase of the internet, which is why I suggested we just call it the internet, um, (laughs) that will be more immersive where the lines further blur between the, the real world, the real life that we're the real physical world and did the digital world and the lines also further blur between what's a computer and what's us. And again, the metaverse does not exist yet, but it is interesting to see glimpses of it. Even um, I remember, I think this was maybe 2015 or so, 2014, when Microsoft first released the first version of a product they call HoloLens, which is essentially a little bit like Google Glass, that failed product from Google, but it's basically, you know, eyeglasses, computerized eyeglasses that you wear. And then you see both what is physically in front of you and you also see kind of computer displays. And Microsoft was very clever in these demonstrations showing possible uses. So there's one that I I can remember from that first Microsoft um, demonstration where you were sort of looking at a light switch Right, you take in sort of the cover off a light switch that needed to be repaired, and you know you were holding tools, and there was sort of a a person in a digital video who could see the light switch that you could also see, and was talking you through how to fix this broken light switch, and was able to sort of through the, their computer screen show you kind of an arrow, right, that that would pop up in your field of view that said, okay, here's this green uh, wire 
unscrew the screw and the green wire and then do X, Y, and Z, right? So oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. It's like looking up one of those YouTube how-to videos, exactly. except it does it for you in the context in which you're actually in, almost customized. Exactly right. And there were some other you know, demonstrations also for things like video games, right? Microsoft owns Minecraft, which is sort of a, a Lego block-like video game and showed a kind of version of Minecraft where you know, the, the blocks instead of this sort of blocky world, instead of being on a computer or smartphone screen in front of your face, it was literally in the room around you, right? So you'd look at the coffee table and the coffee table basically turned into Minecraft bricks. And so I think, you know, that those kinds of aha moments of, okay, I can sort of see the potential of this. We're seeing glimpses of that with things like HoloLens and um, some of the virtual reality headsets. And and frankly, it's most evident so far in video games, right? Um, something like Fortnite, which is a, a, you know, a video game that anybody who um, is a tween or knows tweens will probably recognize. You know, Fortnite has virtual concerts today you know, where people sort of feel engaged attending um, a musical concert and hanging out in like an outdoor venue through a computer screen, right? And that's an example of the sort of blurring of real life and virtual life. And, you know, I, I totally get that some people are like, this is hokey and I do not want this. I do not want to be with animated avatars watching a musical concert, and definitely when I hear Mark Zuckerberg talk about his vision of the metaverse, I think, no, thank you. But I can Wait, see- Wait, is that, is that Mark Zuckerberg's vision of the metaverse? I don't something know. similar to that? Yeah, or? I think Mark Zuckerberg, I mean, he's been talking about this for a bunch of years, but he, he that is his vision, right? Is that we will like, I don't know, give birth in the metaverse or- um, <laughs> go, Like to, uh, to baby avatars? I but- don't know. I don't know, but I might have exaggerated <laughs> about giving birth. But, but I can see the potential, right, of- this kind of more immersive digital experience. Again, it's not, it's not magic. It's not going to um, cure cancer, but I can see how that could be the next phase of the internet and how that could be both exciting and terrifying in the way that all technologies are both. Yeah. Um, but I, I think no matter what, that is increasingly the, the vision of computing is sort of technology that that is no longer as obvious, right? I mean, everything that we're talking about um, for the the future of technology is again abstracting the technology. So the the all of the artificial intelligence um, technologies, right? It's all about stuff that you can't really see. It's sort of software that can predict. Okay, this assembly line at a car factory, it's going to conk out in two weeks, you better replace this, I don't know, steel drum or something. Um, Or it's cars that drive themselves, or it's sort of sensors that know, okay, we need to um, turn on the sprinklers, or we need to order more kale at this restaurant in San Francisco because they're running out of kale, right? That is where technology is going, is in areas where um, the the technology becomes less obvious, more abstracted. And again, there are sort of really exciting aspects of that, but it also becomes harder to be deliberate about the use of technology and its effects on ourselves and our world if we become less deliberate in using it, if it just becomes this sort of autopilot. Yeah. I bring up the metaverse also because... 
the sort of stuff that takes place online for years now has also had some real commercial effects as well. I mean, people are buying purely digital things and have been for a while. I'm talking even before the rise of things like non-fungible tokens and other things that you can buy. And even before, you know, cryptocurrencies became a thing, people were going online to buy like purely digital objects, for example, in video games where you go online, you buy, I don't know, a special sword or something, and then that makes your character stronger. And you can play this game, you know, basically forever with other people who are also playing it, you know, halfway across the world or whatever. Like, there are real things happening that affect real bank accounts online and in the digital realm. And I just, I have to imagine that something like the metaverse, where we're talking about somebody's, you know, completely digital second life presence being transferred from video games to, I don't know, real institutions that also will have some kind of a presence in the metaverse, uh, to other things, like, would also involve quite a bit of economic interaction. I don't really know how to think about that, but it seems like there's no way to totally segregate the two. Uh, your online life and your in-the-real-world life, in part because it is going to affect, like, your resources, your money, what you can do in one could very well end up affecting the other. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. And and look, I think um, any any stage of the internet, it eventually becomes highly commercialized, right? So uh, people are already talking about this. And again, it's way too soon to really know where how this is going to pan out. But yes, the people are talking about um, homes in the metaverse, right? You might own a, a physical home and then a home in the metaverse that you pay actual money for and that you, um, you know, buy virtual cars to put in your metaverse home garage. And um, you buy virtual goods, as you said, people are already, already doing that. So you buy virtual goods for use in the metaverse. So, you know, the, it's, I'm sorry, it's, I'm just imagining a lot of weird conversations where it's like you're telling a spouse or a romantic partner, hey, I got us a second home. Great. Where? In Palm Beach? No, on the internet. <laughs> Yeah, I'm like picturing. Could you could you pay a teenager a virtual teenager avatar yeah. to mow your lawn in your metaverse house? I, I don't know. Uh, are there thirty year mortgages in the metaverse? <laughs> right, right. Um, but yeah, I, you know the the prospects for it becoming heavily commercialized. I think you can also see by the fact that Microsoft just spent almost seventy billion dollars to buy the video game company Activision. And you wrote in one of your columns on this deal that, in a way, video games might end up acting as a kind of gateway to get people into the metaverse because that's where it, it already is closest to existing in a kind of germinal form, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, look, the, the Microsoft uh, Activision acquisition, it, it's kind of a, a short-term and a long-term play, right? The short-term play is video games, that Activision is a very large and historically successful video game company that has fallen on hard times, both because of workplace sexual mistreatment and harassment claims against the company, and because there are some fans who are unhappy with the direction of some of the Activision games. So, you know, Microsoft, it's a, it was an opportunity for Microsoft to buy this very large and successful company at maybe something of a discount because of these various scandals. And it's an opportunity for Microsoft to um, build its Xbox franchise. You know, video games are, I'm not a video game player at all, but it is an enormous 
commercial industry where people spend way more money on video games, both the sort of, you know, candy crush type games you play on your phones and these Call of Duty style, really immersive, engaged, expensive video games that you play, you know, on a fancy computer console or an Xbox console. So this was an opportunity for Microsoft to really build out that Xbox franchise. But yes, I do think the video games are the only piece of the metaverse or the potential metaverse future of this immersive internet that you can that kind of exists already that again people are playing these immersive games that do blur the line between real life and a virtual world and people are hanging out in virtual realities on places like Fortnite and and Roblox and they're building things um you know, they have their sort of communities of of builders, of sort of tween Roblox programmers who are making these games more engaging and immersive and building things like, you know, college graduation in in Roblox and things like that. So, you know, that is the only place that exists so far where you can sort of see the metaverse or glimpse at least a little bit of a vision of the future um, of the Internet. Yeah. The the other thing that that calls to mind is just that unlike when I was a kid playing video games, it doesn't seem crazy to me that video games have become so immersive and so sophisticated. And it doesn't even occur to me to tell somebody that if they're playing video games, that they're just wasting their time in the way that it was when I was a kid, because video games were still only, you know, in their relative adolescence back then in the nineties, you know, I think, I think, you know, when I played, when I was playing Sega Genesis too much, you know, my parents would be like, you're wasting your time playing Sega Genesis too much. Whereas now they've become artistic. They tell long form storytelling. A lot of times the storytelling, from what I understand, is pretty good. I'm saying all this like you as somebody who's not a big gamer. I spent the Christmas holidays getting my ass kicked in in Mario Kart on the Switch by my friends, five-year-old and seven-year-old kids, right? So um, it's not like something that I deeply understand, but I don't sneer at it anymore. Like this has become a mature industry, partly just because of the passage of time. And it's a big business now, right? Huge. It's, I mean, it's way bigger than the movie, than the global movie industry, for example. It is an enormous business. And look, I, I totally understand why people are befuddled by this, but there are people like, you know, like Ninja, right? Somebody who is a celebrity and a very wealthy person because he's good at playing video games and um, kind of building a community around around his game playing. There are college scholarships for sort of competitive video game playing, right? Esports. Um, I was talking to a, a teenager, a, a 15-year-old, a week or two ago in, in Texas, who is really interested in getting into computer programming as a career. And that's largely because she got into playing video games and then also um, programming games and things like that. And, and for her, that was sort of her entree into, uh, you know, potential technology career, right? That's something that I think people have been doing for a long time, but it's much more accessible now because of how widespread games are. So yeah, I mean, I recognize even though games are not necessarily for me, these video games, it is both, you know, a cultural influence and incredibly massive industry and a really important area of technology that in many ways is sort of charting the course for everything else. 
Do you think that too much of the buzz when it comes to technology, and I mean the buzz generated by, for example, we in the media or cultural critics, uh, you know, famous social media users or what have you, that too much of it goes to things like social media itself and the social media companies, to streaming, maybe to gaming, but things that involve this sort of shift towards what might someday become the metaverse, you know, gazing at a, str- at a screen, uh, interacting with people online versus technology that more directly affects like the physical world. Um, so, you know, obviously these days we're talking a lot about vaccines. So that's a big exception. Obviously, we're all talking about vaccines. They're getting a ton of buzz. The future of vaccines, what else could they do? You know, the amazing technologies that led to these vaccines being developed so quickly. But other than vaccines, you know, other things like biotech, every now and again, I'll read a story about the possibility that one day we'll grow organs to, to replace, you know, somebody's organs to get it instead of waiting for a transplant, um, I don't know, from cells or something like that. Like, I'm not an expert on the technology itself, but like that looks miraculous to me, you know, the potential for gene editing, um, the potential to make our environment better. It seems like these are technologies that maybe get a little bit of short shrift, Right. And there could be some good reasons for it, like the stuff online. People love using social media. People love gaming. You know, they love watching stuff on Netflix and and on the other streaming platforms. Like I'm not denigrating those things, but it seems like there's a kind of an imbalance here. And technologists, at least, have been talking about this difference between bits versus atoms for a long, long time, you know, bits being the stuff that's digital, uh, atoms being like the stuff in what you might call like the real world, the physical world. And I just, I don't know exactly how to think about this, but it seems like there's so many actual problems in the physical world, you know, in, in physical, in, in terms of health, in terms of the environment, in terms of our surroundings. I'd love to be able to buy a cheaper house that was made, you know, through some new advanced technology and that made it possible to build the house way more cheaply or something like that. Uh, So what do you think about the balance between what gets the attention versus what should be getting the attention? It's, it's such a great point. And I think part of the issue, so for me, the, the thing I might, I find most confusing is I don't actually know what technology means anymore. Right? Because I Oh think my God. <laughs> when, and you're the on tech newsletter writer. I know, I know, I'm in trouble. Um, and what I mean by that is, it, you, you know, the, there are things that we, I think, w- would mostly understand and, and agree is technology, right? A computer, a smartphone, a social network, maybe Netflix and video games. But the thing about technology, again, this is sort of a cliche, but it's also mostly true that. Um, every company is a technology company right now. So a- any retailer is thinking about, I mean, this is more of a consumer-facing thing, so it's maybe not a great example, but any any retailer is thinking about you know, ways to both be a physical store and be a digital store and reach consumers where they are. Y- you're right that there are all these sort of technologies in in areas like real estate, right? Both to kind of change the nature of selling a home. You know, there's the sort of iBuyers, right? Those um, software that basically buys and resells homes. But there's also all these companies that are sort of uh, streamlining the process of buying and selling a home through technology. 
There's, um, you know, 3D printing of homes. Uh, there's all kinds of areas of healthcare. You know, radiology is a sector that's been sort of transformed by technology where you have a lot of kind of automated readings of radiology films. So you have all of these areas that technology is sort of changing in ways that maybe we we wouldn't know about if we weren't in those industries, but they do affect those certainly the the functioning of those industries and also how we interact with them as consumers. And um, you know, there's a Roy Bahat, who's a venture capital investor who is um, really great. He often refers to these companies as sort of hot swap startups. That it's basically um, young companies that are often started by people who are sort of steeped in the real estate industry or in logistics or in construction, and they basically try to reinvent the entire way that that industry runs using technology. And and some of those examples are sort of you know Compass, you know, a real estate brokerage company that is again changing the nature of what it means to to buy and sell a home, and. I personally find it really confusing to try to write about those companies. And I feel like that may be one of these issues where maybe those companies don't get as much notice as they might deserve, partly because I don't know anything about real estate brokerages, right? So it's the kind (laughs) of thing where I don't know that a technology writer would be very good at understanding how the real estate brokerage industry is being transformed by technology. And maybe those kinds of things, at least when they're relatively emerging, fly under the radar of people who do know more about how the real estate brokerage industry works. So there are all these really interesting transformations that are happening in lots of places that do count as atoms. Um, But it's just sort of, we may not even label it as technology so that it makes it sort of maybe a little bit less visible. I love this point about the kind of amorphous definition of technology itself and how it makes it so hard to see. And I got to imagine that, you know, just in terms of like your job and how you do it, it requires a kind of constant vigilance for ways in which technology actually is changing the way we live, but we might not quite recognize it precisely because it works in in some of these strange and underappreciated sometimes ways that are even too slow for us to recognize, but they add up over time to a massive change in the way that we do things, right? Yeah. And, and you know, the, the, things about, the thing about technological change, um, to use that cliche, is that change happens slowly and then quickly. Um, and we may not necessarily appreciate it in the slowly phase. Um, and even something, even if I think about something like Uber, right, even today, those kinds of on-demand ride services, at least in the United States, are relatively niche. They're, they're not used by that many people, but they have been, even at, at relatively small usage, they have been so transformative to both the nature of work um, and what, what a job means, and also the sort of function and policy around our roads and cities. And I just find that fascinating. Again, such a big change to two humongous forces in the United States, labor and uh, sort of transportation and, and urban planning from something that is still, I mean, relatively small, not something that everybody in the United States does. So I think that's sort of a, a, a really fascinating sort of challenge of writing about these 
technological changes, the way that sort of small changes can have these mammoth ripple effects. And I also love your point about how some of these technologies may not by themselves look super impressive, but they kind of take on the function of a matchmaker, which sounds like it might be a small thing, but actually it can make a big difference in how you experience the physical world. So if you think about something like Airbnb, you know, I would think about that as as a digital innovation. It's a website, right? That's all it is if you just take it on its own terms. But it completely changes or potentially can completely change how you experience a city, how you experience travel, where you actually end up staying. Uh, same thing in a way with the improvements to teleconferencing technology and, and to Zoom and things of that nature because it has helped to enable people to work remotely in completely different cities. Well, that changes your surroundings, but you have to make the connection between the fact that it was Zoom that at least contributed to that change in the real world, whereas if you just think about about it as like, oh, well, it makes it possible for like us to talk to each other. Well, no, if it makes it possible for you to also live in a totally different place, well, that is affecting your physical space. It is affecting your own surroundings. So telehealth is, is another great example. And so I guess sometimes we can't quite appreciate it. But even so, like, yeah, I, I just I just remain totally uncertain about like where to put the emphasis, in part because what gets our attention can sometimes, I think, contribute to like also what ends up getting, I don't know, resources and funding and attention and kids getting excited about studying it in college so they can become scientists and like change that, right? You know what I mean? Like it, this, this exists in like a big entangled space where politics and attention and excitement and commerce all sort of interact. And it seems like it requires an act of deliberate will on the part of like the media and tastemakers and, and other people in positions of influence to direct attention at the stuff in the physical world if we want big changes to come about. It's a great point. I, I mean, I do think um, for what it's worth, there are definitely resources. I mean, I think investors in technology companies are aware of this, um, the, the potential of digitizing more of the the physical world, the physical stuff that we do in, in particularly areas like right, healthcare and education and construction and manufacturing, enormous industries with a, a lot of profit potential, right? For for people who are for companies that manage to sort of yeah, electric vehicles. The, electric vehicles. Space right, travel, right, like they're getting a lot of attention right, now. Right. right. So there, there there is a lot of money in the atoms, let's put it that way. But True. you're but I hear your point about the sort of cultural awareness or attention, right? That um, I really feel like this is one thing that has changed dramatically in the 12 or so years that I've been writing about technology full-time, that even then, technology really was something that was mostly like this kind of discrete industry that existed on in software and, and hardware, like screens and feeds, basically. And now it's really everything and and that is both it's really fascinating but it also presents all these challenges right because when you have this may not be an awesome example when facebook started it was this like new thing right but when autonomous vehicles when that technology starts to to uh, digitize our physical world right that is something that's like oh okay this is a physical thing how do we plan our cities around it what does this mean for public safety 
what does this mean for do we no longer need cities if people can just like live gazillions of miles away and then some magical robot will drive them to work. To your point about Zoom, right, that those technologies that enabled people to, or many white collar workers, to work from anywhere has sort of maybe changed the nature of real estate, right, that maybe fewer people want to or will live in these superstar cities and instead they'll kind of spread out to the the country or the world. So, you know, you have these sort of technologies as they've leapt from bits to atoms, from digital to physical. They're also presenting us humans, both individuals and collectively and policymakers, all of these challenges about how to effectively channel these effects of technology in our cities, in our schools, in our healthcare system, in our labor force, um, on our roads, in our housing market. It's just, it's all just so much bigger. Yeah. Let's talk about uh, the free COVID tests and how the website for it, the government's website for it, went viral in the last few weeks. Because I loved your column about this. And here's what you write. Quote, social pressure, like hearing about the coronavirus test website repeatedly from friends and family, can be more influential than official health recommendations or advice from doctors, unquote. This was great. This was uh, an intriguing lesson in how persuasion works, but also I think a great example of how technology sometimes exacerbates, sometimes reveals, sometimes just intensifies or exploits the human biases that we already possess And this was actually a success story, though, a success story in how to see what the human biases are that can be made to work um, in favor of getting people to sign up for something that you want them to sign up for and actually access the thing that you want them to get access to. Yeah, I I kind of love this story. I I was sort of endlessly endlessly fascinated uh, by it. I don't know about you, but the day that that COVID, the government opened that U.S. Postal Service website to order free COVID tests, I heard about it from everyone. Like everyone was talking about it. It was in all of the friend chats and the family chats and people heard it from the they're like moms. Yeah, it was posted everywhere too. <laughs> right. Yeah. It was everywhere. And basically, you know, I I thought, what 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 is happening here? It's not just that we love free stuff, which we do, and that lots of people couldn't get COVID tests or couldn't afford COVID tests, which is also true. But um, you know, the more I talk to people, the more it sort of made sense in this kind of mechanism of how information spreads. And again, both for good and for ill. So people who study sort of misinformation and and rumors, they talk about this issue that we're more likely to believe in something that we hear if it comes from someone we trust or somebody who we believe is like us, right? This is how gossip spreads. This is how rumors about like Antifa looters in wildfires spread. Um, And it is also how news about this public health campaign spread, that we heard about it from people that we trust. So we didn't need a, our doctors. We didn't need um, uh, Dr. Fauci to tell us about this. We heard about it from people in our in our literal social networks. And that compelled us to go and buy this thing. And it really feels like sort of a lesson that people 
who study both public health and online information always talk about is just how influential people that we trust can be. And we know this from our real life, right? That we trust our school principal or our pastors um, or our cousins, right? There are people that we trust because we know them and we think that they're, I don't know, trustworthy or, or like us. And so in this case, it was used for good. Let's talk about the ongoing series that you're writing about on how creators can make money online, you know, by becoming YouTube stars or TikTok stars. And I especially want to talk about the business model here because a consistent theme that you've been writing about is how if you look at some of the biggest tech companies, well, the place where they still make a ton of their money is through advertising. They collect information about their users, and then that means that they're able to target advertisers better to those users, and they take a cut of that. And so I guess I want to start with uh, the YouTube business model, which is a little bit different from what I had expected. It's something I didn't know about. It's a more direct connection, I think, between the user and how many you know how many people are following that user and the money that the user can make. It's still an ad-based model, but at least the user gets, the creator gets to participate in it. So how is YouTube different from some of these other companies? So I've actually been baffled that it has remained this way for more than a decade, that YouTube remains the only major website where, where people post stuff or anybody can post stuff that splits revenue with, with people who make videos. And it doesn't do this to everybody who posts on YouTube. Like you and I probably couldn't do it. But once you reach a certain level of sort of followership on YouTube and you meet some of YouTube's criteria for kind of decency and standards, YouTube basically, you know, it, it airs, shows ads in and around YouTube videos. And then it takes 55% of that money and hands it to the person who made the video. And arguably, that is one reason why YouTube is maybe the premier uh, internet entertainment destination in the world because that is actually a place where people who are good at making videos and try to make it their job, they can actually earn, in many cases, a a good income because YouTube shares revenue. And all the other websites... um, you might have a you know enormous following. Often those people are sort of hustling to I don't know get sponsorship deals. You know they like mention the t-shirt company in the middle of a TikTok, or you know they're using fame on the internet to leverage it to get on television, or all these other indirect methods. And YouTube is one place that has this relatively straightforward deal where you make videos, um, ads run, they you get a cut of the money. And, you know, it's so powerful and yet it's so rare. And I keep, all the time I hear these internet companies talk about all these like future ideas about, well, you know, we will have these blockchain solutions in the future and that will give you some fraction of ownership over your tweets and then you own your tweets. And I thought, okay, but you don't need blockchains. You could just do what YouTube has been doing since 2007 and let people share in your wealth. Um, And that's such a powerful concept that, again, remains rare. Yeah. What do you think about, like, the idea of the direction in which the money should flow uh, for people who, 
use some of these social media sites. So, for example, I was caught a little off guard by a discussion recently of the idea that people with big enough Twitter followings would actually be the ones paying Twitter some kind of a monthly fee to use it so that you can still broadcast your tweets to this big audience uh, and so that you could, I don't know, keep the following there. And, and if it's something that you need for your job, then it might be worth it. And I was thinking, well, like, well, wait a minute, like, shouldn't it be possibly going in the other direction? Because yes, of course, like Twitter provides the platform that's incredibly expensive and so forth, but it also needs the network. It needs the people participating in the network um, for it to keep making money. And so anyways, I was just kind of confused, right? Like, I don't yeah. know what the right answer to that question is, but like, <laughs> if you have a huge following, does it mean you should be paying the platform or should the platform be paying you? Like, what what is the sort of dynamic here that we should be considering? And I don't know the right answer either, but it it is, it's again, one of these things that we're somewhat on autopilot about. We just sort of assume this is the way it works because this is the way it worked from the early days of the internet where a website started and it attracted people and then the website sold ads, the end. Um, but I don't understand why we need to sort of continue to follow exactly the same playbook that websites um, came up with in like 1998 when you have these platforms that are um, hundreds of millions or billions of people um, that right now, frankly, it is an amazing business model, right? That Facebook, we make the product for Facebook, your tweets and memes and videos, and th that is Facebook's product. And they are paying $0 for that, uh, almost $0 for that. Obviously, they have to hire like content moderators and they have computer servers, right, to um, handle all these, all these posts. But essentially, it is a zero content cost business, um, which is awesome, but maybe we need to think about whether that makes sense anymore. Yeah. What do you think about a lot of the work that's been done on how a lot of these companies capture our attention and keep it, right? Because in like normal human interactions, that sort of thing takes place all the time, right? Like, you know, if you're, uh, if you're hanging out with your friends and you're telling a fun story, you're trying to keep their attention. Uh, you might also just want to have a fun night out. So like you want to keep everybody interested in staying there. Same thing if you make a movie or you put together a great podcast, right? Um, if you're like courting someone on a date, right? Like, of course you're trying to like keep their attention, right? Like, so I, I think sometimes people use the word manipulation and they're not really considering what it is they're talking about. Like these are companies that make a product and they want people to use their products. So they're going to use certain tactics to keep your attention. But we've also learned that psychologically that can be pretty tough, right? Like uh, that can be bad for people if they're just sucked into, you know, being on Facebook all the time or being on Twitter all the time. Like I, I try to break my own addiction to Twitter from time to time by just spending days away from it and trying to keep myself from even checking it. It's incredibly hard. Uh, and a lot of these tactics I think are often considered like quite devious. I think there've even been a lot of defections from some of these companies from people saying, look, like this is evil stuff. I worked there. I designed the algorithms that are meant to keep people there. The algorithms are often intended to make people as angry as possible because that's what keeps them engaged. So some of this I think is probably quite devious, but I just 
don't know like where to draw the line between keeping someone's attention because you want them to use their product as you have a right to do if you run a company um, or if you make something uh, versus, I don't know, hacking somebody's psychology and trying to drum up some pretty negative emotions uh, or even worse in order to keep them there because you know that they're vulnerable to it. It's such a complicated. It's such a complicated issue, and I just don't think I'm smart enough on this kind of psychology of attention to to give you a good answer. It it does worry me a little bit that you know one of the things that I've talked to people who are experts in this area about is that you know there are these moral panics about you know people becoming zombies, about dime store novels, or the radio, or television, or video games, right? Every new form of media, there is some moral panic about kids in particular becoming addicted to these um, forms of entertainment and not being able to turn them off and those companies having, having an incentive to keep people glued. And again, literally from like the era of dime store, serialized dime store novels. I'm just sort of conscious of that history that that we do this all the time. The, the the other issue you brought up about these sort of forms of manipulation is maybe the loaded word, but I'll use it. Um, manipulation. You know, the, one of the really disturbing stories in the Facebook files, the Wall Street Journal series last year about Facebook, is research that Facebook tweaked an algorithm and it made people angrier. Right, that it, it, because it sort of optimized posts, posts got more um, circulation if they, um, I'm now forgetting the metrics that they use, but basically the things that people, including like political parties in Poland and BuzzFeed found was that the more kind of extremist um, headlines or messaging got circulated more on Facebook and therefore political parties in Poland and BuzzFeed changed what they did to be kind of more blaring and more polarizing because that was the kind of stuff that was winning attention from the the computers that Facebook programmed. So that's the kinds of thing, it again goes back to that deliberation, is just being sort of more aware of the effects of these companies' decisions, these these machines, basically, the machines programmed by these large corporations, just being more aware of their effects on our behavior. Um, and to me, that's really the crucial thing, is just that sort of deliberation. Do I really want this brand of dog food, or is it simply that Amazon put this at the top of my feed and that's why I'm buying this brand of dog food? One of the things I've really enjoyed about your series on online creators is that in a way you're sort of de-glamorizing the work that they do because it actually is really hard work. And it can look very glamorous when you know you see somebody on TikTok or somebody on YouTube on the screen and whatnot. Um, but actually there's a lot of hustle behind it. And some of it I think might be, you know, unsustainable for some of these folks because they have to sort of constantly feed their viewers, their, their followers. But I guess that some of it I also found quite endearing, you know, that, that there's all this creativity coming from such young people and that they're trying to find new and different ways to connect with their audience. Uh, but I'm kind of curious to know how you personally have, have experienced uh, these interviews that you've had and sort of learning about these creators. It's really both. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely... Um... You know, I, some of these people that I talk to who make a living from basically being online all the time, I find it utterly exhausting, and I sort of feel grateful that I just sit in my 
uh, one bedroom apartment and type <laughs> words and get a paycheck every two weeks. Like, it's exhausting following and learning yes. about what they do. Forget totally. about actually trying it. Yeah, totally. I get it. But I, there is also something that I just greatly admire about the work that, I mean, even um, I remember one of the very earliest people who seemed just really amazing at making internet videos was this young French guy named Jérôme Jarre, who was mostly on Snapchat, um, sort of, I think in the era, maybe it was about 2014, something like that. And, you know, the Snapchat format is very confining. It's just like a few seconds of um, one photo or one video after another. And he just made these amazing videos of like going to some small town, um, and you could sort of see him getting on an airplane and traveling to the small town and then getting there and talking to these little kids. And they were making these sort of um, lights made out of discarded plastic water bottles, right? He told a whole story in these little snippets of photos and videos. And it was sort of emotional and warm and it had a narrative. And it was just like a remarkable aspect of human creativity, basically through this very confined medium of a few seconds of video on a smartphone screen. And now there are so many people doing that on the internet that I just kind of, I, I really um, respect them. And I really um, appreciate that how hard the work is. And I also feel like there's also an element of this where there's a little bit of a, of a lie, a little bit of a mythology behind what they do, right? And, and was talking about this with Lee Jin, who's an investor in these kind of um, online creator companies. This comparison between this sort of myth of gig economy workers, right? You can be your own boss. You have this kind of flexible job. If you feel like working, you can. If you don't, you don't have to. And I think what the gig economy and the sort of internet creator economy share is a little bit of that somewhat mythology of being your own boss and you know not being wedded to some man and being at the whims of a man. You know, if, if you make videos on TikTok, yeah, I guess you're your own boss, but you're also sort of subject to the whims of fans on the internet and algorithms of these companies and business models of these companies. So I respect what they do. It is hard. Not everybody that tries to make a living from the internet, I, I would personally admire, but um, I think that it is a big industry and it is an aspiration for lots of young people who maybe I might have wanted to be a professional athlete when I was a kid. I didn't, but some kids do. Um, and now people want to be software programmers because of Roblox or they want to be um, YouTube stars because of whoever they follow on YouTube, right? So this is just, this is the world. Poignantly and beautifully told. Last question. Uh, how has covering tech, now that you've been doing it for a few years, kind of changed your own understanding of the role of technology in your own daily life and, and in how you use tech? I think the, the thing that's changed for me personally is just that I've become so much more aware of tech. Again, it's, it's about this deliberation that I talked about. Am I listening to this song because I like it or because some algorithm put it at the top of my feed, right? I am now that person who like, I can no longer shop on Amazon because I'm constantly looking at like, how many bogus do I think that's a bogus review? Is this a marketplace vendor or is this a first party vendor? 
you know, if I look at Twitch, I wonder, is this person live streaming for eight hours because he wants to, or because there is some sort of business model? Do you know what I mean? Like, it mm-hmm. is now broken my brain where I can no longer just <laughs> um, blithely enjoy doing something on the internet. I now kind of see, again, is, to use the matrix met- metaphor again, I see the, the code and the business models <laughs> kind of behind the behind my eyes. It's sort of like what happens every time you professionalize something that you enjoyed in your personal life. Right. You do lose a little bit of the enjoyment, right? Totally right. It's like professional chefs, right? They never um, cook in their own kitchens. Yeah. It's like that advice that we all got when we were kids, you know, find something you love, do that for a living, and then you'll never work a day in your life. It isn't quite true because when you do something for a living, even if you did love it before and even if you still love it, it changes your relationship with that thing. You know, it's definitely true. It's definitely true, and and it's okay. I was never one of these people who's like infatuated with with technology for technology's sake. Um, so it's not like it didn't ruin the magic for me, but it definitely like is a mental load. It's a cognitive load in my brain. Yeah. Well, Chira, uh, we've known each other a long time, and unfortunately, the pandemic has continued to make it impossible for us to hang out in person. But this is the conversation that I would have wanted to have if we could sit down over coffee or a drink. And I'm really hoping it's also the first of many that we'll end up having. Uh, So, yeah, thanks for being here. Next time over beers, although it may be slightly less coherent (laughs) if we did it over beers. Yes, we won't even start the chat until like beer number three. How about that? <laughs> it would probably be really different. Um, <laughs> we could try it. We could try it. Uh, thanks so much. Thank you. And that's all the time we have for today's show. You can find links to Shira's on tech newsletter columns in the show notes for today's episode. The New Bazaar is a production of Bizarre Audio from me and the person who no technology can ever replace, executive producer Amy Keene. Adrian Lilly is our sound engineer, and our music is by Scott Lane and DJ Harrison of Subfloor Studio. Please follow or subscribe to The New Bazaar on your app of choice. And if you like today's show, please leave us a review or tell a friend. And if you want to get in touch with us, I'm on Twitter as at Cardiff Garcia. Or you can email us at hello at bizarreaudio.com. And we'll see you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 